service. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. The stories about George Reeves are insane. He went from struggling actor to primetime star almost overnight when he landed the title role in The Adventures of Superman. He had a seven-year affair with the wife of a powerful MGM executive and feared Hollywood fixer. In his car, he nearly lost his life multiple times, including when the brakes failed and his car crashed, an accident that may or may not have been a deliberate attempt on his life. And George Reeves' death is one of Hollywood's most mysterious. Even though his roles in films like Gone with the Wind and From Here to Eternity were small, it can be said that George Reeves made great films. Unlike that clip I played you at the top of the show, that wasn't a clip from a great film. That was a fair use sample from Stamp Day for Superman, a 1954 educational film produced by the U.S. Treasury Department to promote savings bonds to school children. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to Douglas Sirk's Imitation of Life. And why would I play you that specific slice of celluloid cheese, could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on June 16, 1959. And that was the day that Superman himself, George Reeves, died naked and drunk on his bed from a speeding bullet through his head. On this episode, Hollywood fixers, primetime stars, faulty breaks, and the man of steel himself, George Reeves. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Season one, Hollywoodland. In 1937, Eddie Mannix had it made. He was a comptroller and general manager for MGM, the most prestigious movie studio in Los Angeles. MGM boasted an unrivaled 176-acre stable of actors, writers, and directors. Crawford, Gable, Garbo, Kukor, Lang. Eddie worked alongside the men who had been in Hollywood since the beginning and literally made the town what it was. Legends in the making like Louis B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg. He had come a long way from working odd jobs on the carnival circuit back in Jersey. But Eddie Mannix had a problem. It was his wife. Bernice Mannix lived 100 miles away in Palm Springs, but she posed a problem nonetheless. She wanted a divorce. Eddie didn't try too hard to hide all of his affairs over the years. First, Mary Nolan back in the 1920s, and now Tony Lanier, whom he had been living with openly. It was common practice in Hollywood. Married men having a girl on the side. Everyone in the business knew about it, even if the general public didn't. But it disgusted Bernice. She moved out to the desert and told Eddie to lawyer up. Bernice wanted four grand a month, and therein lay the problem. But Eddie could fix the problem. Problems were his specialty. Because even though his business cards may have had words like comptroller and general manager printed on them, 
Eddie Mannix was really a fixer. He made things disappear when needed, paid people off when needed, roughed people up when needed. If one of the studio's actors got drunk and ran their car off the road or had an affair or had an abortion, or in the case of actress Patricia Douglas, took MGM to court for a brutal rape suffered at one of the studio's drunken stag bacchanals, Eddie did what had to be done to fix it. Everyone on the MGM lot knew that Eddie Mannix was a bad, bad man. Eddie Mannix is a fucking gangster, they all whispered when he walked by. And not just the talent, janitors, drivers, waiters on staff at the studio's mess hall. They all were fair game when it came to one of Eddie's what do you know pop quizzes. You always told Eddie what he needed to know. And although he wasn't technically a gangster, as much as he thought he was given the old days surrounded by Fort Lee wise guys back in Jersey, when Eddie couldn't get the job done with his own hands, he could always make the call back home to Jersey to the connected men that he was connected with, real gangsters. Sometimes Eddie needed the real deal muscle of an East Coast thug to make his point in the heaviest of ways. He was starting to think that this was one of those times. He had this whole Bernice problem on the brain when he picked up the phone to reach out and touch someone. Bernice was living at a resort in Palm Springs. She enjoyed going over to the Cathedral City and tossing dice onto a green felt table at the Dunes Club. The fact that it was illegal added to the thrill. Saturday, November 20th, 1937, 2 a.m. Bernice Mannix wanted to go home. Al Wertheimer, the Dunes owner with whom Bernice was on a first-name basis, offered to drive her back to Palm Springs. She accepted. Wertheimer was a bit of a gangster in his own way, reported ties to the Purple Gang, aka the Sugar House Gang back in his hometown of Detroit. Bootleggers and hijackers who ran the city's underworld with authority and drew the ire of another Midwestern mob boss, Al Capone. It was only a seven-mile drive from the Dunes to Bernice's place. And they were a few miles outside of Palm Springs when they saw another car up ahead. It looked like it was stuck in the sand on the edge of the road, idling. Plumes of dust kicked up. Steam escaped from under the hood. Its headlights were on full blast, pointed directly at them. Wertheimer put his hand up to his eyes to shield them from the blinding light. But with one hand on the wheel, pressed his right foot on the brake. And then, noises. Tires squealing, engines revving more headlights behind them, in front of them. Wertheimer didn't know what the fuck was going on. Bernice panicked. Wertheimer put his raised hand back on the wheel, both hands now, ten and two, and moved his foot from the brake over to the gas. The noises got louder, squeals, screeches, rumbles. Was someone gaining on them? Was someone coming from in front of them? From behind the car stalled out on the side of the road? Wertheimer had no clue. Bernice screamed. Seconds later, Wertheimer lost control of the car. The steering wheel slammed into his chest as they went off the road. The car flipped over onto its roof, back on its wheels, and then on its roof again. And the cops found Wertheimer thrown from the car. His chest crushed so badly that most of his ribs were broken. Shoulder broken, collarbone broken. Bernice wasn't so lucky. She was pinned underneath the car, declared dead on the scene police found two sets of tire tracks from where they had gone off the road and long scratches and dents along the side of Wertheimer's car, as if another vehicle had rammed up against it and ran it off the road. Eddie Mannix no longer had a problem. He never said another word about it. Over 20 years later in 1959, Eddie Mannix had a new problem. It wasn't an MGM problem. It was another personal matter. This time, it involved his second wife, Tony, the woman he had left Bernice for. 
Just like he had done in the past, Eddie was carrying on an affair with another woman on the side. The difference being that this time, Tony didn't seem to mind. They had an understanding. To even things out, Tony found herself her own man on the side. Her boy toy was a Midwestern actor named George Reeves, eight years her junior, who despite small roles in Gone with the Wind and From Here to Eternity, was often relegated to B pictures. Didn't help that his acting career was forced to pivot to making army training films when he was drafted into service during World War II. Tony and George began the relationship in the early 50s, after George's divorce from his first wife was made final. George was over six feet tall, handsome, hair slicked back, toothy Iowa smile, but struggled to make ends meet. Tony helped with his bills. She bought him a car and a modest house in Benedict Canyon a neighborhood in LA just north of Beverly Hills that was home to Hollywood elite over the years, like Valentino and Pickford and Keaton. Eddie was happy that Tony was happy and even happier that she didn't give him shit about his mistress. It was all so weirdly hunky-dory that the four of them would go out on double dates together. And then George landed the Superman gig. He swallowed his pride, put his haughty thespian illusions aside, downshifted from the big screen to the boob tube and signed on to play the Man of Steel in the adventures of Superman for six seasons on TV, from 1952 to 1958. He became a god to millions of children from coast to coast. When the run ended, George had two options, re-up his contract and put the suit on for at least one more season or bail and deal with the soul-crushing realization that the only work anyone wanted to give him involved a pair of skin-tight spandex something had to give. He was more than Superman. He had to remake himself. There were a lot of things that wouldn't last forever. One of them was whatever was going on between him and Tony. And so in 1958, at the age of 44, feeling that woozy combination of TV star invincibility and midlife crisis career fallout, George took a page from Eddie's own sleazy book and began his own affair on the side a 35-year-old socialite named Lenore Lemon. Everyone called her Lem. Everyone except Tony. Tony had other four-letter words for Lem. George dumped his older old lady. Tony was devastated. Not only was George reaping the rewards of being a major TV star, but he was doing it living in the house that she had bought for him with another woman. It made Tony sad. And a sad Tony made Eddie Mannix, that fucking gangster, very angry. What George Reeves had done to his wife wasn't right. Tony's sadness was a problem. George Reeves was a problem. And Eddie knew exactly what to do with the problem. He would fix it. Holy shit, it's fucking Superman. George Reeves could hear people shouting and mumbling near where he was stumbling down Benedict Canyon Drive. His knees were buckling, blood trickled down his face. His forehead had already gone full melon. His eyesight was blurry, but when he spun around, he could make out his 1957 Jaguar, a sleek XK140 smashed up against the cement light post at the intersection of Easton Drive. The fucking thing was hissing like a possessed cat. The horn was ringing out. He'd left the driver's side door wide open. George swerved on his feet, not exactly sure where he was walking to, maybe towards his own house, which was just down the road deeper into the ravine. 
1579 Benedict Canyon. Neighbors and bystanders kept coming out of the woodwork. Hey, mister, you all right? Jesus Christ, Reese, you came around that corner like a bat out of hell. Who is Superman? You're bleeding. George's body hit the pavement. He was in shock. He wasn't drunk, even if he was drinking more than usual these days. It was April 1959, and he was stuck between that goddamn rock and a hard place. To be Superman or not to be Superman. 104 episodes over six years, wasn't that enough? That was the question. Those were the questions. They were questions that often required copious amounts of alcohol simply to ponder. But no, not today. It wasn't booze that hurtled him towards certain death. It was the brakes. Goddamn brakes gave up. He had put one foot down on the pedal and then two and nothing happened. The pedal just sank to the floor, limp, useless. He was taking the curve on the street way too fast like he always did, thinking maybe he could reach Superman's cruising altitude. Flying, always flying, and before he knew it, the front end rammed into the concrete. His body flung forward. It wasn't unlike the single bounds he would take on the set of The Adventures of Superman, the ones he made with the assistance of a wooden springboard on the floor, well out of the shot. But he didn't need a springboard for this stunt. The interior of the Jag was tight. His forehead smacked against the rearview mirror, thus the blood and the melon. 27 stitches and a bottle of prescription pain pills later, George went to see his mechanic, who had some unnerving news. The Jag's brake fluid had been drained. Someone had deliberately fucked with his ride. Someone wanted George Reeves dead. But who? George didn't go out of his way to create enemies. He had a sunny disposition, was a good egg. In addition to acting, he dabbled as a boxer here and there, but shit, they told him once that he didn't have the killer instinct he needed to be a fighter. He got along just fine with his co-stars over the years, from Jimmy Cagney and Sidney Toller to Vivian Leigh and Claudette Colbert. They all found him to be decent, even if he wasn't a scene-stealing actor, which wasn't necessarily a bad thing from their perspective. He was far from the kind of guy who made you want to sabotage his fancy car so that he'd die in a fiery and unexpected death. And George Reeves' level of fame was relative. He wasn't pulling down the big bucks like his A-list compatriots. As famous as it made him, The Adventures of Superman was a low-budget production, which meant that the entire cast George included were paid modest salaries in comparison to your Brandos and Jimmy Stewart's. The show had the good fortune to debut around the same time as the dawn of the Silver Age of comic books, a period of creative and commercial success for the medium. And a major element of its success is that it offered an additional outlet for the fanboys of a burgeoning million-dollar industry. It's said that over 90% of households with children tuned in to the show every week. When George did become a household name, he was the kind of star who used his fame for good. He suited up and hung with the sickest of sick kids in the hospital. He did photo ops. He flashed that big Iowa smile. Even when the kids kicked him point blank in the shins or threw rocks at him just to watch their hero's super strength firsthand. He didn't expect money or fame from those visits. He just did it because he was a stand-up guy and it seemed like the right thing to do. And that said, he may have unintentionally created a few enemies when he sued a construction company and one of their truck drivers back in 1956. This following an incident where his Jag got sandwiched like a ping pong ball between two trucks on the highway. All three of them full speed ahead. And George walked away with some minor injuries and major anxiety. But it was highly unlikely that three years later some vindictive trucker would suddenly take it upon himself to enact revenge by disabling the brakes in George's car. 
In fact, that scenario played out just a little too much like the revenge plotline in The Perils of Superman, one of the latest episodes of the show that had aired nearly a year earlier. In it, a team of villains with amorphous lead masks returned to get back at our hero for putting them behind bars all those years ago. And the outlandish storylines had obviously gone to his head. But he had to admit that he had taken to walking on the wild side of late, especially when it came to his long-term affair with Tony Mannix. Former Ziegfeld Follies dance girl, she made George feel like a star before he was a star, and they lasted seven years. Of course, George knew all about the open relationship stuff between Tony and her husband, Eddie, so he wasn't necessarily concerned about retribution from MGM's most notorious tough guy while they were dating. It was the breakup that had him worried. Because George also knew all the stories that circulated about Eddie Mannix, the ones he heard through the Hollywood grapevine, and also the ones he'd been told firsthand by Tony. Whistleblowers who got their whistles shut, wackadoos who found themselves whacked, would-be stars whose bright light was blown out. And George knew that for every story he knew about, there were five other stories that remained 100% squelched. Things that had been done to people that were so ugly and so fucked up that they could never be revealed to another human being. No one would want to work a day on the MGM lot if they knew what was really happening behind the scenes. And that's why Eddie Mannix was so good at his job. Tony was devastated when George left her. George's phone began to ring at all hours of the day, sometimes 20 times a day or more. Every time George would answer, hello, hello, hello. Silence, the slightest breath on the other end, and then. George changed his number a few times, but the calls kept coming. And George knew the calls were coming from Tony. He knew she was distraught, but it didn't stop him from filing a complaint with the district attorney's office. That was a walk on the wild side move. He may as well have poked a bear. Eddie Mannix was likely already a ball of rage, seeing his wife humiliated by a TV actor. And now George was phoning the authorities, calling the authorities on the Mannixes. Did George Reeves know who the fuck he was dealing with? Did he know it was more than likely that he would wind up at the center of one of Eddie Mannix's infamous squelched stories? Eddie could single-handedly ruin George's career, and that was most likely a best-case scenario. But George had moved on. He was feeling more powerful than a locomotive, but his acting ambitions were greater than jumping through windows like cheesy deus ex machina. He had been Superman the entire time he was with Tony, and now that he was making a concerted effort to break tight, he wanted to break his whole routine, a do-over. He wanted a whole life reinvention. George leaving Tony wasn't part of the original plan, not for Tony at least, and not for Eddie. George and Tony were waiting on Eddie to die, but once he was gone, they would get married. But even though Eddie had his fair share of health issues, he was a tough bastard. It became increasingly obvious to George that MGM's MVP wasn't slipping off this mortal coil anytime soon. That wannabe gangster probably paid off death himself to buy a few more years. And for his part, George wasn't wasting any time getting any older. It was time to lose Superman and time to lose Tony too. He wondered if changing up his lady friend would change his life. And it did. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Nineteen forty-one. 
New York City. Sherming Billingsley, the former bootlegger and now well-connected proprietor of the Stork Club on East 53rd Street, ran his posh nightclub on a series of hand signals. He'd tap his left shoulder, tap his right shoulder, make a fist in one hand, run three fingers through his hair, massage his hands together like he was warming them up. That's how he communicated with his staff to ensure that the nightclub's clientele, A-list movie stars, musicians, politicians, athletes, had the most sublime experience at his midtown joint. He was like a third base coach. He had a signal for when a guest needed a little something special, maybe a bottle of champagne or a bottle of La Galeon perfume, and another one for when staff needed to ignore whatever it was those well-dressed yet very obviously hoodlumy wise guys were up to at the corner table. And then there was the hand signal for the guests they called heavy furniture. Real difficult types, disruptors, disorderlies, the ones who fucked up the vibe of the room. Those guests got an immediate visit from one of the store club's coolers, who would get them outside pronto with a clear message to not come back anytime soon. Tonight, the coolers got the signal that they needed to move some heavy furniture, but this one was a first. Billingsley never had to toss a lady for fist fighting. Lenore Lemon was feisty, a taker of no shit, a powder keg, the 20-year-old socialite, a regular at classy joints like Cafe Society in El Morocco, currently had her dukes up and was taking swings at the guys around her. She connected a few times, and the crowd swelled, drinks spilled, Billingsley's cooler snaked their way through the throng. They didn't wait to hear her side of the story. It wouldn't be the last time Lem was tossed out on her ass. When George Reeves took a shine to Lem over a decade later at Toots Shore's restaurant in Manhattan in 1957, he was attracted to that feisty temper of hers. Her combative attitude turned him on, and so did her jet black hair. She said whatever the fuck she wanted, did whatever the fuck she wanted. She was the complete opposite of Tony Mannix. She was younger too, some 17 years younger than Tony and nine years younger than George, who was pushing into his mid forties. Lem was a regular at all the CNBC nightclubs in New York City. A typical dinner out would find her out with the likes of the Luciano family crime boss, Frank Costello, who would leave all the girls at the table a crisp $100 bill under their plates. But Lem didn't do TV and she sure as shit didn't do comic books. And that night at Toot Shores, a friend asked Lem if she wanted to meet Superman. Lem responded with a furrowed brow and a dead serious question. You mean that well-hung sex freak from Havana? He's here in New York? Lem and George were clearly from different worlds, about as different as an alien from Krypton and a fast-talking girl from the big city. And they met again months later, this time in Florida, and George convinced her to move all the way across the country and into his modest house in Benedict Canyon. By the summer of 1959, George was putting his life reinvention in order. He wasn't afraid of Eddie Mannix anymore, even though Tony was still harassing him, despite the complaint George had lodged with the DA. He agreed to do a seventh season of The Adventures of Superman, partly because he was offered more money and partly because he was given the opportunity to direct half of the season's episodes. But he diversified his immediate future in order to facilitate a transition away from his iconic role. First, he began to develop a few feature film projects, Return to Earth and The Deserter, which he wanted to direct. Second, despite lacking that so-called killer instinct, he planned to lace up his boxing gloves again for some exhibition matches with world light heavyweight champ Archie Moore. Most pressing in the summer of 1959, however, was his impending marriage to Lem, 
which they had planned for Saturday, June 19th in Mexico. They would honeymoon in Spain. To prepare for their trip, George had secured $4,000 in traveler's checks. They never made it to Spain. They never made it to Mexico. George Reeves didn't even make it to Saturday. In the early hours of Tuesday, June 16, 1959, George Reeves was found naked and dead face up in his bed in his second floor bedroom, a bullet hole in his head, his brains all over the wall behind him like a hasty Jackson Pollock doodle, a slug in the ceiling, a nine millimeter German Luger on the floor near his feet. Lem told the cops that she wasn't surprised. She said that George was despondent over the re-upped Superman contracts. He was depressed over his typecast career. Lem said they had been drinking that night, George, Lem, and Lem's visiting writer friend, Robert Condon. As Monday evening turned into Tuesday morning, George left for bed. Some Benedict Canyon neighbors knocked on the door and joined the impromptu booze sesh, William Bliss and Carol Von Ronkel. Neither of them were really known to George or Lem. George came back downstairs a short time later, seething at the noise and at Lem for continuing to keep him awake. He wanted to eject her from the house like Sherman Billingsley had ejected her from the store club all those years ago. She was heavy furniture. He could make the hand signals, but none of the house guests would know what he was doing. Plus, Lem did live there, and it was after midnight after all. He wasn't about to put her out on her ass in the middle of an L.A. ravine at this hour. He didn't have that killer instinct. And they were all laughing. Lem, Condon, Bliss, Carol Von Ronkel. Her name sounded like a villain in one of the B-picture scripts George was trying like hell to turn down. Or adult, or both. Here comes the two sisters of wit, George thought to himself. This one's half and the other one's knit. Shit. George's head hurt like hell. He was drunk. They were all drunk. He had that Archie Morebout the next day. Superman wasn't going to win with a hangover. George left them all laughing and sluggishly walked himself back upstairs. He's gone upstairs to shoot himself, the poor bastard, Lem joked. Her guests laughed some more, down the dregs at the bottom of their tumblers in. Lem had Bliss do the recon upstairs. She couldn't bear to see it with her own two eyes. But when the cops showed up, Condon, Bliss, and Von Ronkel all corroborated Lem's story. They were drinking. He was angry. She made that joke about him shooting himself, and then he was dead. They all agreed that it was morbidly ironic, and the cops found no sign of forced entry upstairs. But here's the thing, and it may be the most important detail of this whole story. It's entirely likely that none of what I just told you is true. First off, that gun. Why did George Reeves have a gun in the first place? Because Tony Mannix gave him one. And why did Tony Mannix give him a gun? For protection? As a plant to be used at an unspecified later time? As a goof? No one knows. And then there were those late night guests. Who were William Bliss and Carol Von Ronkel? People from the neighborhood who just happened to drop by for a midnight pop? Surely a party girl like Lenore Lemon was all for it, but it begs the question, why were they there on that fateful night at that fateful time? And were they there at Lem's request to play the role of character witnesses for her story? Or were they placed there to distract Lem while something more sinister went on? something she didn't even know about. A fix, perhaps, set up by someone. Set up by a fixer, maybe. Maybe a fixer like Eddie Mannix. Did Lem tell a sad sack suicide story because she thought saying anything else made her look guilty? Or did Lenore Lemon actually kill George Reeves? 
Was George intending to break off the engagement, as has been suggested by some, causing Lem to shoot him in one of her well-documented fits of rage? And did she then use her connections with gangsters like Frank Costello back in New York to keep all the house guests quiet when the cops showed up? And by the time anyone asked any of these questions, it was weeks later. Lem had already gone back to the scene of the crime alone, found a sealed bag of evidence, opened it, took the $4,000 in traveler's checks and hightailed it back to New York. suicide, Helen Basolo wasn't buying it. The LAPD were just plain wrong. Chief William Parker was off his goddamn nut. Helen was a thousand percent sure her son, George Reeves, didn't shoot himself. There were a million reasons why. It wasn't like him. He wasn't to put a luger to his head tight. He had made a name for himself. He was a star. He was about to get married. He had the world on a string. He had his reservations about being Superman, sure, but they weren't life or death reservations. It just didn't add up. So she asked around Hollywood for help. She wanted an attorney on retainer. She wanted an attorney who would challenge the LAPD and look into the details that they conveniently ignored. Someone who wasn't on the take from Eddie Mannix at MGM who wasn't about to fall under Lenore Lemon's seductive spell. She wanted the best, and they all told her to call Jerry Geisler. Geisler was the guy. Geisler was the one who got wise guy Bugsy Siegel off when he went on trial in 41 for the murder of Big Greeny Greenberg. He got Errol Flynn acquitted on those statutory rape charges back in 43 and helped Bob Mitchum fight that marijuana bust in 48. Geisler knew his way around gangsters, around Hollywood, and around the LAPD. He knew the ins, the outs. He knew that if it walked like a duck and quacked like a duck, it was a fucking duck. And just like Helen Pasolo, he knew that there was something real unducky about this suicide business with her son, the guy they called Superman. First off, there were no prints on the gun. How could George have wiped his prints off the Luger's grip after he shot himself to death? Next, the spent bullet's casing was found underneath George's body on the bed, which seemed like an unlikely place for it to wind up. And there were two other slugs found on the bedroom floor under a carpet. It was almost like the carpet had been put there to hide them. Lem didn't phone for the police until almost an hour after she supposedly discovered George's body. Why wait so long? Tony Mannix phoned a friend early that morning and told them that George wasn't just dead, but that he had been murdered. Why would she say that if she didn't have more intimate knowledge of what happened in his bedroom that night with the gun that she had bought for him? Geisler got those goddamn goosebumps he got when he knew he had something, something that would turn the whole thing on its head, something juicy. He called for a second autopsy. He found that the funeral home had embalmed the body before an initial autopsy had even been performed. But upon an inspection at his request, bruises were found on George's head and body. Then Geisler got a tip that Eddie Mannix owned the funeral home. If true, that could be huge. Did Eddie Mannix have something to do with the death of George Reeves? Before Geisler could find out more, he was paid a visit by a few men. When he told Helen Basolo about this visit, he didn't tell her exactly who the men were or what they told him, only that the people involved were dangerous. So dangerous, in fact, that Geisler was dropping the case, walking away, no charge to Mrs. Basolo. 
Geisler's face was drained of all color when he told her, like he'd seen a ghost. Jerry Geisler never said another fucking word, and neither did Eddie Mannix. Tony Mannix wept for weeks. Lenore Lemon poured a drink somewhere in New York and another and then another and spent the rest of her life trying to forget everything that she knew about George Reeves. And George Reeves was dead. The fix was in. A fix so private, so muddled, so unknowable. Forget it, Jack. It ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. 